Welcome to this episode of the Bretton Goods Podcast. I'm speaking to Anupam Manoj, who's a professor of economics at the Takshashila Institution. Uh, hi, Anupam. Really happy to have you on. Hi, Pradyumna. Absolutely my pleasure to be here. When we look at, you know, as a speaking to you before this, a lot of the times we don't know about the intellectual water we are swimming in as fish. We don't know about the history of the ideas and the policies that um, that come before us. And a particularly interesting case of that is in India, where you know for about forty to fifty years after independence, the government tried in in various ways to protect the economy from foreign imports. Uh, prevent domestic uh, companies from exporting abroad and had this wide range of um, restrictions on on the on the economic act- activities the indian population could do with the rest of the world and many people would not believe that it was very important after all trade was a small percentage of the uh, economy you know i find this view to be wrong and i i'd like to know what's your take on it why were the why was uh, indian trade policy before 1991 and in some cases even after 91 so uh, destructive to our potential so I, there are more than one ways to approach this question. Uh, there's an ideological basis. There's a very real, I think, practical problem. There is also an historical kind of part dependent. So uh, we have to probably touch upon all of those things. But in order to just kind of be brief about all of this, let's uh, go back to that stage around 1950s, right? Uh, once we had reached, once we had gotten independence, um, India was kind of, um, let's say, apprehensive about taking a very liberal kind of approach towards trade policy, given that um, the entire kind of British colonial rule, etc., started with trade. Uh, people were very skeptical. A large part of the um, resistance towards British was also stopping trade in whatever ways, exporting to Britain, uh, putting up trade barriers in terms of import from Britain, etc. So that resistance carried on even after independence at part a part b i think there was um for you know we can discuss the merits later but uh, there was a very real fear that if as a young nation with let's say extremely underdeveloped institutions and economic capacity if you were to open up to the world um there was a good chance that you know, you ha- you'd have multinational companies come in and um, be the new colonial uh, powers over India, and uh, you know, economically speaking. So I think these were the fears at that point of time. Now, how much does that really factor into you know the decision making at that point of time? I don't know. I don't think anybody uh, does unless you were you know a fly on the wall in in those meetings. But at least that's that's the kind of part dependence aspect to it, right? But more um, realistically speaking. India actually just after independence did not take as autarkic an approach as one thinks uh, right now, because just after independence, about let's say from 1950 to 1955-56, there was a surplus of foreign exchange reserves with India. Uh, due to various reasons, uh, the war, pound devaluing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the whole bunch of reasons, um, we actually had forex reserves. So we didn't clamp down on imports as heavily uh, right after independence, uh, as one you know thinks, but it was in 1956 when uh, our forex reserves actually started uh, depreciating, and and we didn't have enough money. We were not exporting anything, therefore we were not earning foreign exchange reserves, and suddenly this became uh, an issue that we had to contend with. How do you now protect scarce foreign exchange reserves? Now, if you look at trade policy for the next 
40 odd years, you know, from 1956 to roughly around 1980, somewhere mid 1980s. I think the primary objective of trade policy was um, in preservation of scarce foreign exchange. We were always, I mean, that was the primary objective. I think everything else came uh, later, you know, your um, ideological bent, you know, we had the socialist ideologies in between with the Indira Gandhi government and, and so on. All of that actually secondary. The primary objective, I think, was how do you preserve foreign exchange reserves? So um, we, we see this in, in all of the policies. I mean, now next, I think we'll, we'll get into some of the details of policy making. But if you will see that the actual policies were determined by how do you preserve foreign exchange reserves more than anything else. So I think that that kind of explains, at least in, in the broadest terms, how, um, how India went about its trade policy. Now, um, before you know, uh, we move on to the other things, I just want to make a mention that India was not alone in all of this. Um, Post-World War II, I, I, I see there's a divergence that happened, right? There are some countries which, you know, uh, because of the Marshall Plan so, and uh, the U.S. that U.S. Uh, gave aid to Europe. And within Europe and U.S., I think trade flourished, right? Within the developed economies, trade flourished. Um, they successively started after GATT and so on successively started to break down some of the trade barriers and, and that went on. So on one hand, you had countries which were trading a lot more uh, than before and, and kind of realized that trade was a way for collective prosperity, right? But on the other hand, there's a whole bunch of underdeveloped, low-income countries, um, just who had post-independent countries who went in the other route. Right, and so they went through uh, this preservation of foreign exchange uh, mode. So many countries at that point of time uh, went through the exact same route, and and the key difference there is that because you had fixed exchange rate, which the IMF was um, trying to do, uh, which we can get to later, but because everybody had signed on to this fixed exchange rate agreement, um, the only way to kind of get out of this was by um, trying to preserve your foreign exchange because they were not exporting things that the world wanted. So that I think that's the main quandary in all of this. I was like, I when I read, um, you know, your article in the 1991 project and I read uh, Bhagwati and Chinivasan's book and I read any Indian post-independence economic history, the, the term scarcity mindset comes into play, you know. They were always worried about running out of money. They were always worried about over-consuming themselves and I understand it that 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 would have been a concern, but um, how did this reflect in the day-to-day -day workings of, of 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 import policy? What were the main barriers to uh, importing stuff, and and you know more importantly, why was that such a big deal? Yeah, so this is actually um, a really big question in terms of. I mean, I I need the next forty-five minutes to go through this, but I'll try and be be, be brief, right? Let's let's divide this into three parts, um, and you know you can make uh, interjections at the appropriate time. The first part is how did they actually go about conserving the foreign exchange reserves uh, in terms of actual allocation of forex. Um, the second part we can talk about tariff systems uh, because that was also primarily aimed at the same thing. And in the third part about the non-tariff kind of import barriers. So let's do it in those three parts. So primarily, in terms of foreign exchange reserves, it's, uh, I mean, it's almost hilarious, but you had uh, the Ministry of Finance who would draw plans, elaborate plans on how do you um, allocate this case forex reserves, right? So first, they, what they would do is uh, take stock of how much forex they had, 
made some sort of reasonable estimate of how much forex they would get in the next let's say six month period and once they did that they would have to allocate it right so in the first stage the most important parts were debt repayment because you didn't want to default you didn't want a sovereign default so they would focus quite a bit on debt repayment whether it's principal plus interest then embassy expenditures um, food took top priority i think fertilizers uh, and then of course petroleum right and that's been the case even uh, until today but yeah petroleum oil and and uh, lubricant so the pol right all of this were the first priority defense needs also i mean so there are uh, elements of um, if you had to import uh, various defense components uh, whether it's weapon systems or so on be it also yeah that would get the first priority so food fertilizer uh, petroleum and defense let's let's put that as one bracket uh, and debt. In once that was done, the remaining part of it would go to you know your commerce ministry essentially. So what the commerce ministry would do is that you know they would first allocate it to different public sector units. And remember, the public sector units were large public sector units in India, which were have mainly meant to do big capital intensive production, right? So they would get the first priority, which meant that uh, iron and steel. Uh, machinery, capital imports, all of this would get uh, top priority, I mean, within this particular aspect, right? And um, once that was, again, once that allocation was done, the third stage is what was, you know, among the remaining bit would go again, uh, the Commerce Ministry would then eke out a small bit in that to give it out to private players, right? So the pr private individuals who wanted to, let's say, import things, uh, again, for production, by the way, not even consumption, and, and I'll come to that, uh, private individuals or entrepreneurs who wanted to produce something using imports were given like the third priority. So uh, basically, smaller scale units, maybe you wanted some raw materials, maybe some machinery, uh, etc. Right. And within that also, there is um, you know, very clear hierarchy of who gets what and for what purpose, etc. We won't get into that right away. Uh, but you know that would be the third uh, thing, and then whatever little bit is left over, and by now you know actually not much is left over at all. But whatever is left over would go for well consumption purposes. So if uh, individuals wanted to import something for their personal consumption, let's say chocolates or an imported car or something of that sort, um, that would be the absolute last priority, right? So uh, or travel maybe and and so on. So I think that that's pretty much the hierarchy. And so all of this was heavily planned, of course, as you can see, um, they had they would determine who would get what. And of course, it all would become under their larger kind of industrial and um, economic policy. So, you know, First preference given to capital goods, then your intermediate goods, and finally uh, consumer goods, and so on. So that you have to see all of this in um, conjunction with your OGL list, you know, your open general license list. You have to see it in in terms of your overall tariffs uh, policy and so on. But this is how forex was divided. So this is the the kind of day to day functioning of how forex would be divided. It was a nightmare, as you can imagine. So you can readily imagine that. Um, the the department or the set of people who would allocate something which is so heavily uh, sought after would obviously get an enormous amount of power. And so you can imagine then what happens with that. Right. And, um, you know, many East Asian countries also had that. You had Korea with, with this sort of problem and you had uh, Taiwan and, sort of, and even Singapore initially, you know, there was this question of because the currency was... Uh, was pegged to the uh, British pound. The question was, you know, will, will we have enough to ensure monetary stock doesn't decline? 
But in all of these countries, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, to some extent, Japan also, the solution to this problem was we are going to export enough to ensure that we, we have more than enough to cover our, our, our imports. But in India, that I don't think that idea percolated through the discourse or for whatever reason, it didn't get through policy. And, you know, how do these um, policies interact with the domestic um, e- uh, economic policy we have? And, and why didn't the Indian government switch to promoting exports? Yeah, it was not easy. I think the government did try to promote exports. I mean, they, they always realized that they had to export in order to well, pay for imports. I think that understanding was there. But we have to remember that, uh, you know, again, economically, domestically, we were in, in an entirely different kind of trajectory than some of the countries that you mentioned. So you have to look at this in parallel with what was happening in terms of industrial policy, right? So you had something like the MRTP Act, which is the Monopolies and Restrictive Trade Practices Act, again, done under the aim of uh, reducing monopolies and concentration of market power, but done to such an extent that it absolutely killed off any kind of private enterprise uh, and private entrepreneurial uh, you know, uh, <laughs> ambitions. And, and so you could see how the MRTP Act, our labor laws, our land laws, um, uh, our entire system of, uh, let's say, you know, even getting business permits, uh, the licenses that were required, the inspections that were that were there. So all of this put together meant that doing business in India was nearly impossible, right? So we know the famous story, right? Some of the entrepreneurs who did uh, manage to set up shop uh, despite all of these restrictions were then restricted as to how much quantity they could produce because the minute it exceeded a particular set of quantity, they were told that, you know, you're getting too big. And so they were stopped from doing so. So um, if a company could barely meet the demand within India, and so this is where I think the story, which everybody knows, right? You have to wait 10 years for a fixed telephone line connection. You have to wait 15 years for a scooter. All of these stories are known. But the, the, the understanding that there is that for an extremely small middle-class um, section of society, which had, let's say, disposable income, your industrialists in India could barely match that demand. So where would exports even come from? So um, even though, let's say these industrialists who were export, who, let's say they manufactured something that the world wanted, which was quite rare, by the way, um, the government would force them to first, of course, uh, address and and uh, you know sell their products in for the domestic market rather than exports. So in that sense, even though they wanted to export, they would. Uh, stop exports because the domestic demand was not met and domestic demand was not met because of their own industrial policy. So, you know, all of this, again, we can go into each one of this in great detail where how labor laws uh, managed to completely ruin, uh, you know, your uh, large scale manufacturing, how again, permits, it was so difficult to get a permit to start a business in India. Right? You had to wait years and years to get a permit to start a business. Even then, you had to agree to a whole bunch of things. For example, and this is where the, the interaction comes in. Right, If you were a business which uh, was manufacturing something, uh, obviously, because your industrial base is not very good, you had to import things. Right, So you have to import either raw materials, you have to import some capital machinery, you have to import probably some intermediate goods, etc. But in order to do that, you wouldn't get the license to import. So even if you got a license to set up shop, you wouldn't get a license to get your raw materials. 
And so where, what would you do? Uh, you had to promise to the government in some way that, you know, I will manufacture my own inputs and that is ineffective, that is inefficient, uh, which meant that there would be, you know, under no circumstance can you imagine a situation where um, Indian industry would be competitive, competitive enough to sell to the rest of the world because you're, you're constantly mired with inefficiency and uh, ineffectiveness in, in, in every way possible. So um, all of this goes hand in hand. Uh, industrial policy and your entire trade policy. Uh, and so even if you wanted to export, I don't think Indian industry was good enough to export at that point of time. And part of that, as I said, is because you couldn't import. And you know, this, this lack of imports, lack of exports, and then and then generally unproductive domestic economy means that this thing has to, how do I put it, fail at some point in time, right? You had a devaluation in 1966, a very politically controversial one, you know. I, I, I It's not about India, but I remember this, where a Labour Party candidate was campaigning in, in Britain in 2019 or 2015, and he went to some lady and he said, you know, please vote Labour, very old lady. She said, oh, you're the party of devaluation aren't you? And the happened in 1967, so many decades ago. And I want you, I want you to understand, I, I want to understand, you know, with 1966 devaluation in India, um, what was exactly the problem? And and uh, why did they keep postponing it for so long? It was, it was, and it's not a face of mini crises a, a few years before, but these things, you know, um, the famous joke goes that uh, when the finance minister says that the economy has strong fundamentals, you, you should sharp the Currency because it, it definitely does not. And you know, <laughs> why do these things go on for so long when when people are missing the obvious? Yeah. So the ninety six. I mean, sorry, nineteen sixty six devaluation is an extremely interesting um, is an interesting case, right? Uh, because at, at that point of time, you had you had kind of sustained fiscal profligacy, um, issuance of like ad hoc bills by the. Uh, uh, RBI, which led to, you know, increase in money supply in India, etc. Um, there's a, so, you know, that resulted in higher inflation and, and the currency was massively overvalued at that point of time. You know, I mean, obviously you have extremely high inflation in your economy compared to the rest of the world, uh, your currency will be overvalued. So it was overvalued in, you know, real and nominal terms. But remember at this point of time, the exchange rate was not floating exchange rate, right? It was very much pegged um, it was a pegged exchange rate first, you know, it was to the pound sterling, which was indirectly pegged to the dollar, which was pegged to gold, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things going on. Um, but it was ultimately, you know, a, a fixed exchange rate system. And that fixed exchange rate system was an highly overvalued uh, exchange rate, right? And so because of that, you had a situation which was just untenable, right? Uh, and so the foreign exchange reserves would was crashing at that point of time. Uh, this is typically, I mean, this is not uh, a rare phenomenon. This is exactly what is happening in, you know, in Sri Lanka and so on. Uh, Sri Lanka right now, you know, I mean, Sri Lanka and, has and uh, Pakistan, had a highly, you know? sorry, and Pakistan, and yeah. Pakistan, yeah, yeah, had a highly overvalued um, exchange rate, uh, which is pegged, and then you, you know, you you have to try and defend. If you try and defend, your uh, reserves will go down, and then you don't have enough money to import. So same thing happened in '66. Um, also important to bring in a little bit of geopolitical factors, which is uh, a foreign aid to India was kind of cut off at that point of time, not cut off, but at least, um, you know, after the 65 war, um, 
for whatever reason, US decided to cut down on the aid that was given to India. And so all of this meant that you had to go through a devaluation. Now, in, in reality, this devaluation would have been a great thing. I mean, uh, it was required. I'm glad they did it. And it was good for the economy, right? And crucially, along with the devaluation, they also tried some reforms. Um, which, you know, again, it's not something which is spoken about quite a bit. So firstly, the rupee was devalued, I think about, it was about 4.76 per dollar. Um, it was devalued to about 7.5 per dollar, um, which was like almost a 57% uh, devaluation in real terms. I mean, now we are about 80, 80 to the dollar. So, you know, you can just, you have to go back in time to imagine what it is. But, um, but yeah, that was about a 57% devaluation, right? Um, now, Along with that devaluation came some reform. So there was a little bit of tariff reduction, um, an expansion of something called the OGL list, which I still want to get into, uh, the open general license list, some part of you know relaxation in import licensing requirements, um, export subsidies were uh, cut down. So there's, there's a bunch of things that was done. However, uh, and I think this is uh, all too tragic because... Uh, this devaluation and the reforms that were undertaken were highly unpopular, right? Uh, domestically in India. So um, there's, I mean, a little bit of political economy also comes in. Um, people didn't like it for, for whatever reason, for large parts of history. And probably even today, a lot of people falsely equate your exchange rate or your strength of the currency with some things like national pride, with things like strength of the economy, which is not true at all. And so there's a lot of, you know, muddled thinking around exchange rate. So a devaluation is never really looked upon favorably, right? Uh, apart from when you're actually doing a devaluation war, uh, you know, currency wars in, in East Asia and so on, but let's keep that aside for the moment. Uh, otherwise, devaluation is not really looked upon favorably, right? It seemed to be something like uh, 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 dent in national pride. So politically, that was not very popular uh, domestically, but within government as well, right? Remember that with, um, with all the controls that were present meant that there was a lot of, um, yeah, again, control that, uh, you know, bureaucrats and officials had in terms of, you know, the, whether it's the rolling out of the foreign exchange reserves, whether it is controlling the who gets a license to import and who doesn't, whether it is including items in, in the list of, you know, uh, in the list that can be imported freely or not, etc. I think all of that meant that you had a lot of power. So this kind of small liberalization steps was not also not popular with the government. Right. And then finally, of course, the liberalization steps were not popular with the incumbents, business incumbents. You know, we would have thought that business would have loved uh, liberalization, but those who had come somehow waddled through this mess of uh, India's uh, uh, government ecosystem and were well established, they didn't want to see liberalization, as as you know, evidenced by the Bombay plan and so on. Uh, they didn't want to see liberalization, right? So it was not popular amongst them. So it it almost meant that uh, it was inevitable that there was a step back. All of the reforms that were done were almost with, you know, in, in the next uh, maybe five to 10 years, almost all of it was reversed and in fact taken further back, right? So by, by 1972, 1973, almost all of the, the liberalization reforms were taken back and uh, much tighter kind of import controls were put in, uh, tariffs were raised, um, a lot of, um, let's say, 
yeah, the restrictions were now a lot more intense than where it was before 1966. So I think that's the back and forth that happened. It was very unfortunate because, uh, you know, if that worked, if things were different, I think we would have been on a much higher kind of trajectory of growth right from 1960s, uh, I mean, or at least 1970s, but whatever historical factors meant that uh, that was not to be the case. And we had to wait until 91 for the reverse. A very depressing counterfactual. But, you know, uh, what was the OGM thing? And it's a, it's a very, um, it is reading um, trade policy, like economic policy in general in developing countries, leads you to so many acronyms. And I always dislike uh, introducing a new one. But what was the OGM? Yeah, so the OGL was part of an extremely complex import licensing system that that was there. Um, now, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of uh, there's a whole bunch of acronyms more that you know I can introduce you to, but I'll probably spare you and the listeners at this point of time. But but to give you an idea of what the OGL is, eh? the OGL stands for Open General License, right? And the open general license meant that uh, it was a list of items uh, which could be imported without a license. So if you if your if the item that you wanted to import was, happened to be part of this OGL list, meant that you didn't need a license for it. You were more or less free to do so, at least in paper. Now I'll explain why that was not even the case. But relatively speaking, items on the OGL were could be imported a lot more easier than items not on the OGL. And this OGL list was a curated list, obviously, by bureaucrats, and it was continuously updated, and it was pruned and refined and uh, modified and added and so on every now and then, which meant that, as I said, it gave a lot of discretionary power to the bureaucrats who were in charge of curating this OGL list, right? So um, the OGL list, again, expanded and uh, narrowed down over time, depending on well, the the direction of the wind, the flavor of the month, and you know, I mean, how people felt at that point of time, and and so that OGL list could um, the inclusion or exclusion of an item in that OGL list could ruin or create a windfall for entrepreneurs who were trading in those things. Right, so it was highly uncertain. It was extremely restrictive in its nature, and and you know, you don't want to be in that uh, situation, right? So. Just imagine this: if if you were to um, if you were to import something, so now let me talk about the overall kind of uh, OG. I mean, overall import licensing system and and the things that were uh, part of it, right? Now, let's say your item is not part of that OGL list, okay? Um, which uh, so it, you you had to obtain a license to get it. So you had to then apply um, to the concerned department to get an import uh, license. And each application was reviewed by on a case by case basis. There were no general uh, rules as such, right? So it was reviewed on a case by case basis. Already, that should you know ring a lot of red flags because um, you know that that is a situation ripe for rent taking. But you you know you can understand that, right? So um, you would apply. Then you would have to, as part of that application, uh, to the chief controller of imports and exports. That essentially that the good you're trying to import is essential. Okay. Now again, essential is a subjective term. Uh, who determines what is essential, right? But keep that as it may. Um, you have to first prove that it was essential. And then you have to prove that, you know, that there was no indigenous uh, Indian made substitute available. That so you that, and therefore you had to import it. 
right so that's the second kind of final topic. decision had no consideration of cost and benefit you had to prove yeah. there was no available but you never had to prove that that you know the existing indigenous one was just too expensive oh absolutely not absolutely not it could be extremely expensive it could be of terrible quality it could be um it sometimes it was non existent i mean if i were to um let's say you wanted to import something i could just go up to the government and say listen I'm, that guy is importing something but i'm making it right and it could be just planned so i could plan to make it in the next 40 years doesn't matter your import license would get cancelled <laughs> so i mean that's that's the true kind of horrors of the import licensing system right in india and then yeah you had to even despite all of that let's say you you got an import license then you had to promise in 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 its own way you had to promise to the government that you will take up manufacturing this component yourself in the next few years right so the import license that was given was let's say for 10 years but within 10 years you had to find a way to find uh, a domestic alternative or you had to manufacture it yourself so that's that's the <laughs> uh, the horrors associated with our import licensing system Yeah, and I was very, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna take a step back. Like, imports are very bad, and but you know, part of the general paranoia about foreign reserves was that moving money in and out of the country was very was was actually quite hard, and, and even today it's quite hard. You you have a, I mean, two fifty thousand dollar limit, which is kind of big on an individual basis, but you, but when you consider the, that the people moving the money out, you know, two fifty thousand in some cases can be drops in the bucket. So I'm, you know, it, it leads to several problems. And, Bureaucratically, if you ever try to move money out of India to another country, it's a you have to run through various rules. But what was the the uh, financial account like? What were you know? We India still hasn't fully liberalized the um, financial account, and there were arguments for and, and and against. But in the in the time of uh, you know FX paranoia, what happened to the financial account? oi it was almost non existent so um the uh, what you call as a financial account in the us is uh, the capital account in india um just for clarification and so there was no there was and there is no capital account convertibility though of course it's a lot more liberalized now uh, in term in in the sense that you have a lot more freedom in terms of limits that are existing but uh, pre 1991 there was uh, extremely tough capital control so whether it is portfolio investment which was again almost non existent or the other way around if you want to take money out of the country that was also extremely tough so you would you just wouldn't get i mean when forex is so scarce for um, importing you know more even essential items uh, uh, imagine how hard it would be for a for a person to say yeah give me the scarce forex so that i can go and uh, buy us stocks or you know go for a you know holiday abroad that was uh, it happened very rarely so and and so therefore that capital account per se um, the extremely tough restrictions uh, financial risk, you know you couldn't invest outside india i mean even now it's very difficult but uh, it's just very slowly this thing but you couldn't take money out of india for any financial purposes And yeah, and um, what about investment into India? You know, it was only about twenty fourteen or seventeen when you had um, FDI liberalized in almost all sectors, except a little bit of defense and uh, some insurance and banking. Well, what was the reason of being so afraid of uh, FDI when first you had this? Clear counter example in you know Korea and I I keep overusing the Korea and Taiwan example, but he also had in 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 other uh, 
countries, right? In, in all the oil-rich countries, they sort of had a good enough balance between domestic oil ownership and foreign oil um, ownership. But why was FDI not allowed? And, and, and you know, I if you believe the idea that uh, that there's the general um, thing that clusters are, are, are important for economic growth. Bangalore is a cluster for IT, you know, uh, Bangs also a cluster for pharma, Mumbai is a cluster for, for um, financial services, parts to the, you know, the surrounding areas of China are clusters for automobiles. And, you know, the, prop, the, the best way to get your clusters to grow is to have FDI in to those specific places. And the problem was when you ban FDI, you sort of, uh, almost implicitly ban these cl clusters forming. And I'm pretty sure that the intellectual arguments against this existed, but what was the reason why there was no FDI uh, allowed? Let me turn it around and say, you know, I mean, if you had a government which was so scared of domestic private enterprise, imagine how scared it would be of foreign Okay, yeah, that's it. I, I don't have to go into anything else because uh, that was the thing. If your domestic manufacturers were under such tough restrictions on what they could and could not do and um, what they were, yeah, what they were allowed to do and what they weren't, I think uh, the FDI was such a far off shot, right? Um, there was deep suspicion about, well, private enterprise in general. And within that, of course, foreign private enterprise would, would just be completely. And by then, of course, we also have to realize how the political economy would have ticked, right? Those private enterprises who had relatively well established, and they spent a lot of time, effort, and money in kind of lobbying with the government. So they would prevent all sorts of competition. So whether it is domestic competition, and of course, foreign competition. So the you wouldn't allow import of certain goods because you wanted domestic industry to thrive. Supposedly, I mean, that's the entire argument that was there about the infant industry argument and a whole bunch of things, right? That's just importing of goods that naturally kind of uh, extended to FDI as well. You didn't want a multinational company uh, set up in India, which could threaten the you know small uh, and medium scale enterprises, your micro enterprises, your cottage industry, and all of that, right? There was a very real fear. And, and so obviously that was not allowed. So there, I mean, there was very deep suspicion to, just to give you a sense of it. I think in, um, in 1991, um, the FDI in India was 97 million. I don't even know what it was in the sixties and seventies. <laughs> I would fraction 97 million. Whereas in 2021, it was 82 billion. So you, you are just that for real exchange. I mean, you know, exchange rate, inflation, all of that, but it still gives you a very good idea of the disparity, right? And then you take that back to what it was in the 60s. I think it was just not even a drop. I mean, only few, like I remember in, in Bangalore, for example, since you mentioned, uh, and since I'm from there, uh, in the 80s or so, I think um, there was just probably one foreign company that was allowed to invest in India. Texas, right? Texas, yeah. TI, yeah. Texas Instruments yeah. was allowed. Um, in in uh, Otherwise, I think Pepsi, I think there's a famous story of Pepsi, which was given an import license, I mean, which was given permission to kind of uh, invest in India, then taken away and then again given. So, you know, I mean, it was not a conducive uh, environment for FDI. Now, having said that, even if you truly allowed FDI, I really doubt how much, how many companies would be willing to come because yeah, uh, everyone says the market is big. I really doubt uh, pre-1991 market in India was not big. Number of people were big, but disposable incomes was extremely low. 
right per capita income was mm-hmm. terrible middle class was the so called middle class now was probably non existent or very thin sliver really mm-hmm. the rich of course didn't matter because it was so small um who would buy your products even if you invested i mean and the only thing that you could do was invest in order to export but you had so many <laughs> restrictions so that wouldn't be possible as well and finally let's say the market is not a consideration for whatever reason um you wouldn't be allowed to operate in a way i mean which company would want to come here face all of your terrible you know labor laws domestic licensing requirement all of that would still be in place it's not that those would go away right so your mrtp uh, act etc you would be subject to all of those laws um i i and that yeah it completely makes sense to me and you know this seems unsustainable we we talked about the 66 devaluation we and um there was the um there was a serious problem of, of all of this not working out very well and and and, and you know when you the, the counterfactual is very depressing here but what was the counterfactual what was the effect on uh, on on economic growth and, and broadly you know we we have examples of like uh, you can't get a tv in here and like, forget tv you, you can you can't get a phone or, or, or you can't buy chocolates but what was the impact on uh, economic growth here yeah so i mean there's there's two ways to tell the story right i mean no two ways to tell, answer this one is by stories and you can consider many um the standard classic one given is you know compare um the ambassador hindustan motors which manufactures the car called ambassador and uh, compare toyota of japan both were set up at the same time and um, you know 50 years after it was set up the ambassador sold 18000 cars in in Uh, all of india and it used the same manufacturing design this was still pre 91 used the same manufacturing design as the very first one so it tells you about innovation it tells you about productivity it tells you about growth it tells you about a whole bunch of things hidden in just that story in comparison <laughs> toyota at the same time was selling 5 million cars worldwide that in a nutshell should kind of tell you what um, these things are right but let's let's leave that aside if if you will because those, i mean it might still be anecdotal but you know we can take other things right um average let's take average annual gdp growth rate uh, in india was about you know what what is derogatorily called the hindu rate of growth right about 3 3.5% we won't get into the semiotics of it but you know about 3.5% um which was basically if you if you really look at that 3.5% and 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 take it up that was just about matching your population growth right plus a little bit of population growth plus capital which meant that the tfp the additional component which should have come by fact you know productivity was just absent right so all of your growth was just explained by population growth plus a little bit of uh, capital growth but nothing more right so that that's kind of depressing in its own way per capita income grew at i think 1.5% um so it was not enough it didn't keep up with the number of you know the actual number of people um you can look at another indicator could be just about india's share in in kind of world trade uh in 1948 it was 2.2% you can i mean people go way back right you can go back to the turn of the century etc it was much larger but let's say post independence and post independence right so at the at the cusp of independence 1947 48 it was about 2.2% of uh, world trade in 1980s when we were independent and we could make our own policies and so on it was 0.5% so it actually shrunk right whereas you you take any of the countries that you mentioned singapore korea etc would have grown manifold right multiple times that again gives you an idea um you could look at export growth 
um, you know, export growth grew at about, I think, 2.7% annually between 1950 and 1973, uh, which is extremely less. World average, for example, at the same period was about 7.9%, right? So uh, we were 2.7%, world average 7.9%. Uh, I, there's so many such indicators you can take up, right? Um, the ratio of trade to GDP in India was about 10%, um, which is again, quite less uh, compared to many other countries at that point of time. So, you know, this this whole bunch of indicators that you can take, which tells you that, you know, our growth was extremely low, our productivity was extremely low, our share in trade, uh, global trade was extremely low. So that gives you an answer. But also a lot of, I think, other legacy issues which you're facing even today. So the growth, yeah, we grew less for that 40, 50 years. Um, and then, you know, post 91, we went on a slightly higher, you know, a growth trajectory, et cetera. But there are legacy issues, which is often overlooked, right? So for instance, the fact that we have such high degree of um, capital intensive firms in the country, right, which is in a, in a labor abundant country, right, is, is a direct consequence of our both import licensing terms and our overall industrial policy because we you know we completely favored uh, capital intensive firms right even import licenses were given to those um, those companies or those firms which wanted to you know import massive capital instead of you know for small capital for labor and so and sort of like given when you have the requirement to manufacture it by yourself obviously your labor intensive firms can't uh, you know promise to manufacture things five years later they do exactly. they're, they're basically lying yeah exactly so i think if you know if you look at today um there are definitely legacy issues um and and you know our entire import licensing policies have have had a lasting impact on the structure of production um the size uh, and and the you know the the kind of size distribution of firms how many firms are big how many firms are small how many firms are medium scale uh, which is extremely skewed towards small industries because that was part of our industrial uh, licensing thing the scale of production market concentration uh, which is quite high uh, the kind of diversity in the products that we uh, produce um, the degree of import substitution etc so you can you know i mean even firms um, product specialization so you look at a whole bunch of things and you will see that uh, the the policies that we enacted in the period between 50s and let's say 80s um, impacts us even today in terms of how our firms behave and uh, how well they can do so that's the legacy issues of all and, you know, um, trade policy has been, I wouldn't say 100% proper, but we've, but up till about 2018 and 19, there were continuously declining average tariffs rates from, from, from 1991, you know, uh, famously, famously said he wanted to burn the red book, if, if, if I remember correctly, and you know, all, all of those things happened, and we've seen some massive improvements, um, but in terms of trade policy, where do you think today the biggest gains are, are to, to be there? What's the low-hanging fruit in, in trade policy today? Right. So, yeah, um, we've, we've seemed to have gone uh, a full circle in, in many ways, right? Um, in the sense that on, on multiple accounts, and if you look at um, tariffs as a tool of trade policy, pre-liberalization, you know, pre-1991, uh, tariffs didn't were not the primary tool at all. In, in fact, it was inconsequential. The import licensing system largely directed and dictated how people traded. 
the tariff system was there purely for revenue purposes right uh, which is and and so and and therefore it had some ridiculous numbers i mean at at one point of time i think peak tariff rates were something like 400% okay um and it was you know extremely again complex needless to say there was a customs duty auxiliary duty additional countervailing duties etc 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 all of that meant that you know there was cascading kind of taxes and tariffs right which meant that you know the peak thing was yeah you had to you could pay as much as 400% of the price of the product uh, on tariffs then we went through you know the entire liberalization tariffs were reduced average tariffs in india came down to i think about 13% effective uh, tariff rate which which is good in its own way i mean 13% is not bad it's more than many of our trade partners um, but it was still um lower than many other emerging economies so if you compare india with in terms of per capita income basis we had lower tariff rates than our uh, peers but i don't think we want to do that largely india likes to compare itself with our trading partners which is india china i mean sorry us china europe and so on australia and if you compare it with them we had definitely higher average tariffs right um but but we were going in the right direction i think there was um, tariffs were reduced periodically post you know 1991 um both fdi was liberalized tariffs were reduced and it was it was see, it seemed to be going in in the correct direction there were some kind of anomalies for example i think tariffs on food and beverages was extremely high at 40% we would put export kind of i mean we'd give export subsidies for a few things we would also give um, subsidies for other things like dairy and i mean agricultural products which would hamper trade these were these were all issues which were very well known but we were going in the right direction now post 2016 let's say i mean you pick a year really i mean it's it's plus or minus one but of course the trade war with which uh, mr trump started uh, had the negative effect on i think overall trade uh, across the globe um, many countries started erect, erecting trade barriers in one in one form or the other tariffs became fashionable fashionable again so you know for a long period tariffs were low and were meant to be low because um, there was a real there was a real threat of both um, you know action from the wto in in some sense and retaliation right retaliation from your trading partner so so countries didn't want to raise tariffs instead they they largely used non tariff barriers right whether it's standard whether it is uh, you know phytosanitary measures whatever a whole bunch of things they would do in order to uh, in order to kind of if they wanted to uh, put restrictions on trade but tariffs were largely low post 2016 17 tariffs started going up across the world india also joined into that game unfortunately and started raising tariffs i mean on on a whole bunch of goods whether it is electronic items uh, on sometimes retaliatory sometimes started by india and if you see in the last few years we've taken definitely taken steps towards again i wouldn't say autarky that's too far i mean that's that's a stretch but we've taken steps towards more protectionism for sure right uh, by one is by increasing tariffs too we have uh, banned a few items etc so we've used non tariff measures we've also done um really really stupid things like you know put uh, price caps on foreign imported goods we put uh, separate kind of e-commerce rules for foreign companies against domestic companies so we've done a lot of really stupid things for sure and and these are meant largely as protectionist measures 
so I think going forward, low-hanging fruit is, I, I still believe, and I think it is largely uh, seconded or it's largely kind of backed up by data and evidence that exists. India gains a lot by a rule-based order. Uh, by a multilateral rule-based order. So in, it is in our interest to first uh, hope, I mean, hope and contribute towards WTO having a larger say in some of the trade uh, policies. I think we benefit from that for sure. But two, I think India can gain from taking even unilateral uh, reduction in trade. And I, I have been uh, advocating this for some time that India gains by even unilaterally liberalizing trade. Because of multiple reasons. One, we are a large consumer-based economy. Uh, you know, 50-60% of our GDP is from consumption. And therefore, if you reduce tariffs uh, and if you reduce, you know, I mean, if you free up imports, I think consum consumers will benefit from all of this, which is good. But two, if you have any hopes of, you know, um, exporting to the rest of the world, you still need, a, you know, you need to make it easy for import. We've learned that in the past, right? Um, Erecting trade barriers, making it difficult to import will not help us export things. So you can't have a make in India scheme and an export promotion scheme and a, a whatever other scheme, but at the same time, make it really difficult to import. That just won't work. We've tried that before. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's I think, one, I, I, I've been recommending that we should, um, I think, liberalize our tariff measures further. So first, reduce the, rationalize the tariffs. So we have far too many rates. It's still uh, extremely complex. We have too many exemptions. I think reduce the rates and then reduce the number of exemptions as well. So you know you don't need to have a 20% rate, but give so many exemptions that the effective rate is 10%. Instead, make the rate 10% and make the effective rate close to that 10%, right? So the, therefore, you'll have much greater clarity in, for businesses that operate. So I think that's, that's the first step. And then, yeah, undo some of the stupid moves that I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, to call the lie, you know, you know, it's the, it's like lying thing, everything that, that goes around comes around. So, it's a, so in the end, we'll, we'll have to keep fighting our battles. Um, thank you so much for coming. I really enjoyed it. Mostly because you, you're, you're very enthusiastic about it. It's, it's, it's sort of uncommon to see that. I really love talking to you. I, I was tired. But now your some of your energy has come to me since I'm ready for the rest of the day. Right. Thanks. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, sorry if I spoke too much, but... Oh, no, uh, no, not at all. I love it when people speak too much. <laughs> all right. Fantastic. All right. Um,